Hello, and welcome to Shattered Lives, an informed, conversational, cutting-edge radio show in touch with today's issues that impact the lives of crime victims, addressing the aftermath of crime, forging a path for hope, building awareness, and empowering listeners for the future. This is Donna Argor, a.k.a. your host, uh, and uh, my co-host, Delilah Jones, president of ImaginePublicity.com, welcoming you to today's show into our library of weekly archived shows. It is our goal to make a difference. And uh, indeed, uh, with each and every Saturday that passes by for over six years now, it is still our perpetual need to make a difference. And uh, we do have a, a very interesting show today. We are going to be presenting an overview of uh, approaches to cold cases, and we're also going to be zeroing in on a South Carolina, a Columbia-based uh, cold case. Um, in just a couple of minutes, I will, we will introduce our um, uh, esteemed detective from um, South Carolina, but wanted to say good morning to the uh, social media maven of South Carolina and beyond. Good morning, Delilah. Good morning, Donna. Thank you for the kind words. That's very nice. <laughs> and well, and my just pleasure. like every 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 show, we've we've got some someone who's in the know, and I think an expert in his field. So um, my voice is a little scratchy today, so I'm not going to expend it. So I think okay. it would be great to bring on our guest. Okay, that 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 is very good. And let's just remind people very quickly that our show is part of a larger network um, called the In, Inside, Inside Lens Radio Network with Crime Wire, the Transparency Project, and this show with over 650 podcasts. Is that correct? Right. That's for, well. For, really pushing on seven hundred. We've been ooh. around for a long, long time. We were we were podcasting when podcasting wasn't even cool yet. So <laughs> this network has been around a long time, and there's such a diversity of shows that are available. It's not all crime related. Um, there's right. a lot of author interviews available. There is, I mean. And as a matter of fact, I think that's how we started out was interviewing authors back in the day when authors had really no no place to go for um, social media presence. And we were able to start with that and went into doing several different types of crime shows, not only um, featuring cases, but also uh, there's a whole series of case of shows about the mob that's very different and you know people who are interested in that can can get a lot out of it a lot of reminiscence about the old days in Vegas and Chicago um, and then right. there's also a whole series on writing uh, I don't know if a lot of people are familiar with that but a lot of tips for writers and how to how to get that book out of you and, and into the hands of readers so yeah, we have a so lot. Really There's a lot. A diversity. Lot to yes. To. So please do uh, after you listen to this show today with uh, Kevin Eisenhower, uh, uh, pass 
pass this on, and you you can have a ball uh, browsing through nearly 700 podcasts of, of very diverse. So now that I've done my little commercial, we are commercial free for the rest of the show, which is the beauty of this. And um, we we love to br- uh, bring on Lieutenant Kevin Eisenhoward, who is a, a 20-year veteran of the Richmond County um, Sheriff's Department in Columbia, South Carolina. Um, and he has worked there in several capacities, uh, working with violent crimes as an investigator and supervisor. And uh, so we, um, and he is uh, representing the the uh, J- Jack L. Robinson and the the daughter uh, of Jack L. Robinson, Tammy Downs. <clears throat> Today we thought we would take a little different perspective instead of just presenting the facts of the cold case, we want to talk a little bit about the approaches um, then and now. So, so Lieutenant Kevin, thank you so much for being with us. It's a pleasure to have you on the Shattered Lives radio family. Ladies, it's, it's my pleasure, actually, and uh, it's a beautiful day here in South Carolina. Good morning. Good morning to you. Um, and, again, thank you for being our, mm-hmm. our representative for this case and and for being so persevering with this cold case and before we get into the nitty gritty of um, Jack Jack Robinson of of which there are many twists and turns both investigatively and other related crimes wanted to maybe address um, the the issue of cold cases you know over a period of time his case happened. Uh, um, began in 1996, and I mean, uh, you can start wherever you like. But in terms of what I was thinking, um, what what back in the day, whenever the day was, what were what were some of the um, approaches to uh, a case that maybe you want to help uh, people to identify, define? How do they define when a case becomes active versus a cold case per se? You know, a lot of people ask that question, and they want to know, is my case gone cold? And it may have been a case from a year ago. Uh, every agency, I think, identifies cold cases differently. Uh, but I guess primarily um, it just depends when there are no viable leads to investigate anymore in the case. So a detective, a typical detective would take a case and he is working his case and he's, he's trying to identify witnesses. He's trying to, to locate people. And then when he runs out of options, places to go, things to do, uh, you know, it, it, the case, I, I refer to them as stale. Stale. Uh, the case okay. will go stale and, and it, it may be, it remains stale for a few months and then something else comes in, and then you're back on the case again. <clears throat> now, when a case goes stale uh, for a year, two years, there's there's not anything coming in. Nobody's calling in, and, and the agencies are different. But we try to publicize cases. We, you know, ask the community for help. We we put things in the local media, um, and when those things fail, <clears throat> generally the case officer at the time. Uh, and again, all agencies are different, but our agency, um, we would then package the case. In, or, in, a, in other words, the investigator would complete all of his reports, 
package the case, get a full list of evidence that may exist, and then transfer that case to our cold case unit here at the Sheriff's Department, uh, the Richmond County Sheriff's Department at least. Um, and we have a group of detectives here that are primary. it's comprised primarily of retired, very experienced detectives who aren't done. You know, they, they may be, they may be, uh, you know, getting their pension, but they still have the hunger to mm-hmm. investigate cases, and uh, so they offer their time at a, a, a very discounted rate. And basically, they, they don't get paid. They do get paid, but it's not enough to to for everything they do. Um, but those, we feel like the the experience <clears throat> that they have shouldn't it shouldn't sit at home with them because they want to go do something and, it, right. and we open the door for them. So, but with their supervised um, by a full-time sergeant and myself, a full-time lieutenant and, and these guys, these guys were the bosses when I was a baby. So, you know what I mean? <laughs> so, so, uh, so supervised well, is, a, is a strong term, but they're my friends and I know I'm confident in them and they, and they, they continue to work these cases and they work it vigorously. Well, does it depend upon, because I'm thinking of, you know, we've had cold case units um, headed by state police here in Connecticut, and we've lost them due to funding. Um, does it depend upon the size of the of the department and and the amount of resources you have to, to keep a cold case unit going? I mean, how common is it now for police departments to still have cold case units, or do they say, we only have one detective dedicated to that one task, right. and that's all we can right. afford. What's what's the situation now? Well, you know, anytime anybody asks me about a, a law enforcement agency, you have to understand that they vary in size, budget, experience, and capabilities. Mm-hmm. Um, for instance, we the Risk Guy Sheriff's Department has been a law enforcement agency since 1787. There's, you know, there's probably about a half a million people in, in Columbia, and we have about 850 officers, which we're one of the largest agencies, sheriff's office at least, in the country. Uh, wow. So we have a budget accordingly that allows us, and our sheriff has, you know, uh, he's been able to, over the years, He's he's been the sheriff for 21 years, 22 years now, and, uh, you know, he built this over time. And we take, in, in fact, kind of I'm getting off point, but we take cases from other agencies that are smaller municipal police departments within our jurisdiction. They don't have the ability to have a cold case investigator. They just don't have the funding for it. Um, so we, we will take their cases from them and work them within our mm-hmm. cold case unit. So we have um, – I think five or six different municipal police departments in our county. Um, one of them has a cold case unit. I think I think one man, uh, but we have six people, seven people dedicated to cold cases at our agency. Mm-hmm. So uh, you know, well, there's the because thing is, people think there's one guy out there doing it, and it's like, oh my god. So that 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 is good to know. Does it seem like sometimes then it's more like a regional approach? If you have a bunch of very small municipal police departments surrounding a, a large metro city such as yours, 
Right. Every agency and every state and location is different, and you're always yeah. going to get that answer when you start talking about law enforcement. But, yes, um, other locations uh, may have a regional cold case unit. I know the Atlanta, the metro Atlanta area has a very large one, which is compromised of, you know, detectives from multiple agencies that all work mm-hmm. on cases from every agency. So it's like – you know, you might contribute a case from your agency, but you might also work on a case from another agency with that detective. Uh, mm-hmm. But here, and I can speak about our agency, we service uh, the citizens of Richland County. And so if you may, you may reside in a municipality here in Richland County, but we're still your sheriff's office. And so if we need to help, we will. We'll do whatever we need to do. You know, the routine police work may be done by local police officers, but we're there for complex investigations, uh, you know, obviously any sort of um, major incident of any type, any large festival. You know, we we uh, are the home. Uh, I'm, I'm a proud fan of the South Carolina Gamecocks, and, and the University of South Carolina is here in Columbia. And it, on any given fall Saturday, they may have – 85,000 people in a stadium and another 100,000 within two square miles. So it takes wow. the, old, the old saying, it takes a village. <laughs> so we, yeah. we, we partner with other agencies and help and assist. And, and again, we're the largest agency, so we have the resources to sort of do that. And we apply that to cold case. I mean, uh, yeah. We, well, we that, that, that is good to know because people out there mm-hmm. are thinking, well, maybe the, they only have one person or they're not working on my case. So you know that in, in that area of the country. And also, you know, people listening to this podcast that have anything to do with this um, Jack Robinson case, they can be rest assured that there are sufficient people looking into it. I mean, progress yeah. is always slow. But with regard to, I'm looking and saying, you know, you're a 20-year veteran um, of Richland County, and I believe if we're we kind of segue into this 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 case properly, you so you would have um, been on 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 the scene just about uh, two years after um, this mm-hmm. case with Jack O. Robinson ha- happening. Is is that is that not correct? If my math is right, it would have been yeah, sort I, of I, two years I into it. Yeah, I, at, it, when this happened, I was a student at the University of South Carolina, but a few years later, I, I became a deputy at the Sheriff's Department, so uh, m- most of the players, the, the detectives that were originally involved in the case, I know, I'm familiar with, and, and, and they're well. So you have that perspective, yeah. So what what, what were the methods back then that, that you were using to 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 solve cases as compared to now on uh, 1996 to 2018 for a case that has some of the elements that we're going to present now. Well, I think uh, it, 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 working cold cases is sort of like having a time capsule. It's what it really attracts me to it. I, I really, I'm, first of all, I love history, and mm-hmm. so. We may work a case, uh, for instance, two weeks ago we solved a case from 1968. Wow, really? That, that is, yes. And then the, the investigative approach in 1968 obviously is much different today. Yeah. Um, we progressed 
as law enforcement professionals today. Um, you know, in, in the old days, you had, you know, some guys that cared about their community and they, they did the best they could. They didn't have much training. And, um, and so the challenges are that you take a case from, let's say, 1968, um, and you're looking at it, and it's the information is sporadic. You know, the, there's not, they didn't write much down. They just kept Very in their sparse. heads. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and and, and you know you, you have to get to really pour through everything that you have available to you and look at it look at it with under a microscope so to speak. Um it isn't uh, it's very slow, it's very methodical. Um you might revisit, you know, you might have a case in a case you might have a detective who says he spoke with somebody and the guy has an alibi. Right. So he couldn't have done it. So then you look back at that same person and say, could the alibi have been fabricated in some way? We mm-hmm. readdress every step of the way. You start at square one and work your way through it as best you can. And the, one of the biggest challenges, at least for my agency, <clears throat> is that, uh, you know, back in the day, the value of evidence wasn't like it is today. So we at least have the knowledge that there is a potential for, let's say, DNA fingerprints. Um, you know, I have another case, for instance, where a, a we know who did it. And uh, at the time, the, the FBI, of course, local agencies in the 60s would send blood evidence to the FBI lab who could only do blood typing as opposed to DNA. So they could say, you know, it's the same blood type as your victim or something like that. Um, and then you get it back. And if, if they didn't care, if they just said that, that's not going to help us at the time. And then they don't take care of the evidence. It goes lost. And we have lots of cases where I have no evidence. I can't find it. I don't know what happened to it. It was damaged. There might have been, for instance. Right. Well, for instance, we had... Um, at one point in an old sheriff's office we used to have, there was a roof leak in an evidence room, and then, you know, the evidence got wet, and as I've been told, and, you know, there's mold and mildew on it, so they throw it out because it's, you know, it's in their minds at the time. It's just, there's nothing. It's just wet, soggy, mildewy stuff. Right. And so we don't have it. We don't have it. But had they difficult. somehow saved that, Kevin, or tried to preserve it, even mm-hmm. though there was mold, could they have, with today's technology, could they have done something with, with that, just hypothetically speaking? Potentially, potentially. You know, every case is different. And mm-hmm. um, if you don't protect, um, uh, you know, maybe a, a, an item soaked in blood, you have to dry those items because if you if it remains wet, um there are microorganisms that grow on it, um, and I'm certainly not a DNA analyst, but as I've been told, it will consume the DNA. So you can actually look at something and say it's covered in blood. Even today, it's covered in blood. But when we test it, there is no DNA there um, mm-hmm. because it's been consumed by, you know, as the biologist would tell you, some organism that that grew on it because it wasn't dried, and that's why. In forensic laboratories today, modern forensic laboratories, if there is a bloody shirt or something that's soiled, we put them in drying tanks that really, 
you know, quickly dry them and sort of encapsulate whatever is there. And so it's safe. And then, of course, we have today, we know that some items may, may, need, may need to be refrigerated. Some items may, may need to be stored a different way. Uh, one, of the, one of the, I guess, real problems we had for years, uh, even up until the 80s and 90s, was that bloody evidence may have been thrown in a plastic biohazard bag. And for those people that don't know that, it's, you know, hospitals frequently use bags that are contaminated with, with fluids, human fluids, right. because they don't want to contract anything. They put them in a plastic bag. It's essentially a red trash bag labeled. Uh, that is the worst environment for evidence that could be. So if you just take that plastic bag and put it in evidence, seal it up, put it, in, lock it in a vault somewhere, you're destroying your evidence. Is that we don't use those. the way the plastic is? I mean, is it something about the plastic? Yeah. It, the, the, the items that are inside, I don't want to speak outside of my expertise, but the items right. that are inside aren't able to breathe. They aren't able to dry naturally. And just oh, like well. you know, if you, were, if you take a wet shirt, throw it in a plastic bag, throw mm-hmm. it in a closet, and open it up six months from now, what do you think it's going to look like inside? It's going to have mold and mildew growing in it. Right, right. As opposed to drying it, leaving it out, letting it dry in the sun, it'll be fine forever. Whatever's there is there. Well, that's that's an interesting thing. You know, people think they're doing the right thing, and and ultimately they're, you know, doing the wrong thing. But, you know, well, they didn't know at the time. Yeah. Right. They, they did the not know. And mm-hmm. I, I, from listening to your description now, I'm thinking that when mm-hmm. you first started out and saying, well, this person couldn't have done it because they had an alibi. To me, mm-hmm. the big difference, and tell me if I'm wrong, the big difference may be that when you're working on a cold case, which we will talk about in a minute or so uh, mm-hmm. with this case, is that you take nothing at face value. Is that right? Correct. That, that you check correct. out every single mm-hmm. thing. You can't, you can't just say, oh, they had an alibi, and so we, we <clears> don't <throat> investigate further. Mm-hmm. Is that the beauty of 2018 investigations? Yeah, what, what I tell even you know, brand-new investigators is that over time, an individual who may be a witness, their personal values may change. Their allegiances change quickly. So let's say if a crime happened in 1996 like this one, and a witness says, no, he was with me, he couldn't have done it. And then you, if you take the time to reapproach him or her, they were involved in a relationship with them at the time that went sour. And right. Today, they have no allegiance to that person, so they'll tell you if you approach them correctly and you, you, you ensure that they're not going to get themselves in trouble, let's say. They may say, you know what? I lied. I lied in 1996. He wasn't with me. I did it because mm-hmm. he was my boyfriend. Right. You know, or my husband or whatever. Um, and so that's why we really stress going back through the original investigation because all you have, you can't – you can't climb into, uh, you know, a DeLorean and go back in time. Uh, all you have is what you have in that file. So the names are all you have. You have right. a couple options. You can you can re-explore, or you can explore those those individuals who were listed in the, initially as witnesses, and you can appeal to the public like we're doing here, um, or people who are never approached by law enforcement but do have information. Um, and those people, if you can. If you can put something in the media, uh, explain, 
put it in a time period, a place, a locality, and they say, you know what, I was there. And I did see a guy run, you know, or, mm-hmm. or whatever it may be. Uh, so, so that's another aspect. That's why I'm doing this today. It's another aspect right. of an investigation is make it public, um, share the information. And then I, and I, I did an interview recently, and after the, the uh, on-camera interview, the reporter was just asking me, well, you share so much more information in a cold case, but when I do an inform, you know, I do a story on a fresh case, you, you're withhold that you won't tell me certain things. There's a reason for it. We haven't in a, in a cold case, we really don't have anything to lose. We may have mm-hmm. it may be a situation where we're contaminating witnesses in a modern case. We're you know we're it's not advantageous to us in our prosecution, our investigation to release information, and that has to you have to keep that in mind. Mm-hmm. So it sounds like with a cold case, and you know, it's sort of you have nothing to lose. You lay it out all out there, and um, right. so and in in some ways, the way you're describing, if if there was a relationship and then it broke up, time the passage of time can be your friend in that way, or it can be your mm-hmm. foe, depending upon you know, like I say, if evidence is contaminated. But right. another thing that I wanted to ask too, and this is. This is a part or a significant part of this case. And I know it's difficult for the relatives of of Jack Robinson, but um, if there's a particular element of the case where the public perception is that they may have not led a mainstream or pristine life for whatever the reason may be, um, you know, it's, is it much harder because you might not get as much response or public appeal versus versus someone that kind of um, you know just didn't get in trouble or or I'm not saying necessarily trouble but but lived outside of the mainstream and I might as well put it right out there right here that it's been pretty much established that Mr. Robinson. Although he was married and had a family, and this is very common, he was a gay man, and maybe you know, kind of walked that walked that edge in life, and maybe took some chances. And in that kind of a case, you're not going to get as many people grabbing on and you know, sort of feeling sorry if they make judgments about someone's. I won't say lifestyle, but particular orientation. Mm-hmm. So is what right. I just said, is that pretty accurate in terms of getting the public mm-hmm. involved? Yeah, you know, um, uh, and to go back, to it, it, it fits right in. Uh, you know, if this was a modern case, uh, I would never say that, you know, um, he was he was homosexual or bisexual, whatever the case may have been with, with Mr. Robinson. Um, it wouldn't be... Advantageous to us. We don't want to. Dam- we're not trying to damage our, our victim or, or, or um, put him down in any way. Right. But when you start looking at a case from 1996, and we work these cases, and and we realize that in, in in that time period, and every time period is different. 60s are different. 70s are different. 80s are different. Every time period is different. And in that time period, we were really transitioning from, you know, people um, being being comfortable with their sexuality and um they may have been ashamed or um you know, didn't didn't disclose how they felt to people um Absolutely. and so when we go back and look at this 
I'm sorry. I'm just saying that it's very knowing many people in the community, it's very common for people to have kind of one mm-hmm. life over here and another life right. over there. Yes. It may be difficult for loved ones to accept, right. but I deal mm-hmm. in reality as a police officer. And the reality is, in, in Mr. Robinson's case, that he was engaged in, um, you know, sometimes I hope I don't use the wrong terms, but a, a closeted homosexual life. So his friends, a lot of his friends and family may not have known that or ever thought that about him, but that's that's part of his sexuality that he, he was he was going to explore. And at the time, um, you know, it was there was sort of a little world. Um, and so you would go to certain bars. You'd go to certain uh, areas in town where you knew people who were like you might hang out. Um, and it's, it's, it's exactly what's happening in this case. So in Mr. Robinson's – I'm sorry. Isn't the important – thing here too is that um, it becomes a, an element of the crime or a contributory factor. If it wasn't a contributory factor uh, of the crime, then, you know, you, it, like you say, it, it wouldn't be relevant. You wouldn't be looking right. into it. But okay. if it, it didn't somehow contribute perhaps to his demise, then it, it would be a non-issue. You know, in 2018, right. yes. most people... Our people are evolving or have evolved and say it's no big deal. So if we put Mr. Robinson into that time capsule today Mm -hmm. and he was alive in 2018, then they said, well, you know, he, you know, he, uh, a gay man would say, so what, big deal. So what? But it contributed to the crime, right? Right. And so in today's world, if we just look at it in our eyes today, it's like, well, it's no big deal. He's a gay man or he's a bisexual man, whatever the case, or lesbian, whatever the case may be. Um, But you have to remember that that time he's trying to, he doesn't want it being public. Um, He's not comfortable with it yet. And so when when you have clandestine meetings with people and your loved ones don't know where you're going or who you're going to be with, Therein lies the, the risk and the problem for an investigator. We cannot track you. We don't know where you were before or where you should have been now, and you didn't get here. So we know that whatever happened happened in this space, if that makes sense. When you have you know, covert meetings with people, um, it, it's dangerous. I mean it's just dangerous, and unfortunately for Mr. Robinson, you know, it, it, it contributed to his death. Um, certainly… He didn't deserve anything to happen to him. He didn't. Um, he didn't want anything bad to happen to him. He, he he cared about himself and his family, but he was exploring this part. And there was always just like a, a, a teenage girl in a bar who drinks too much. There's always somebody that's trying to prey upon those people. They're, they're, the evil is always out there in different places. Um, and of course, we talk to kids about don't put yourself in a bad situation. Don't go here. You know, if you send your daughter off to college. Don't drink too much in public. Don't go to bars and, and alone and that that sort of thing. Um, and so, in his case, you know, he he went to a place to explore what he was feeling, and there was somebody there that was evil there that that, that preyed upon him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and unfortunately, we we maybe sometimes gain a, a either are too trusting or have a false sense of security. 
in where we are or what we're doing, and that's when we get into trouble, you know. So uh, maybe right. it would be helpful now for listeners to kind of know, can you take us into um, how the how the crime began or, or before the mm-hmm. crime began of what you know to kind of piece together this puzzle right. so that we can tell right. this story? Mm-hmm. Sure. And just to kind of you know, place people where we're at, we're in Columbia, South Carolina, which is the capital of South Carolina and the center part of the state. Um, and, and we're talking about August of 1996. Uh, there's an area near a near uh, Williams Bryce Stadium, which is uh, where the University of South Carolina plays football, and the state fairgrounds. It's situated along a river, um, and there's a boat landing for fishermen. Um, it's sort of out of the way. You could you could even be there, not be from here, be around that area, spend time there, and not know that this boat landing exists, but it does. Um, and... Uh, you know, on August the 17th of 1996, Mr. Um, Robinson, he went to that boat landing. He drove himself in his uh, 1991 Dodge Dynasty four-door. Uh, it's white. It's white in color just to, so people can, can see if they were there or around the area, what I'm talking about. Uh, he, he drove there, and there were other people there, some teenagers, hanging out. And, and these boat landings, I'm sure it's the same around the country. Sometimes, is it kind of a lover's lane or where people can, kids would exactly. go to drink or whatever? Drink, <laughs> use drugs, uh, whatever yep. it may be. It was just an out-of-the-way place. People could hang out and do things that they wouldn't do in in in, in public, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. So it, it appears that Mr. Robinson went there um, based on the witnesses who were there and met with a man. I think that's very important. He met with a man who's been described as um, a, a Latino male of some sort, or, or at least an olive or darker complexion, about 5'10", 160 pounds. And he was wearing uh, you know, sort of the classic dark Ray-Ban sunglasses and he had a mustache. They described him as being around 25 to 40 years old. Um, again, your witnesses are teenagers, and that's a different, that's a whole different thing when you have teenage witnesses. It, as people get older, their ability to sort of size somebody up, describe them, it changes. It gets a little better more with sophisticated. Age. Yeah, yeah, right, right. It gets better <laughs> with age. I mean, they, they've been around people of different ages. Remember, a teenager spends most of their time around their parents and, and people their age, so they don't really have our time gauging age and, and stuff like that. But, um, but that's the case. Mr. Robinson drives there. And based on these kids' description, they, it appeared that he'd met this man here. And so that's important to say that he met him. He obviously had met him somewhere else and knew him. And, and just to kind of, you know, based on my investigative experience, it may be different. It, I mean, there are areas here in Columbia at the time that the gay men would, would – Go and they might they might encounter a man they did not know and engage in sex with him. They might not even know his name. Right. Uh, but it appeared to these witnesses that these two men knew each other previously. And they describe it as the two of them met and walked off and they use and I'll put it in quotation marks, you know, air quotes, they use the term as if they were a couple. 
and they walk off into a wooded area, sort of an overgrown area near the boat landing. Um, they hear some screams. They hear him say, I'll give you my money, and and then start asking for help. And so the, the Latino male, as he's been described, runs off, runs past them, and Mr. Robinson stumbles out with a knife wound. Um and obviously, wow. it died as a result of, of his assault. Um, how very, how so very that, sad. How very sad. It, it is. It is. You know, I try and put myself, it's very difficult to do, but when you're investigating things, you try and put yourself in the victim's shoes, as so to speak, as to what they were thinking, what could they have been doing, you know, what, what was their mindset at the time. And, and it's, it's horrifying that, you know, he was so troubled by his life that he would put himself he, he's a he's a he's a man in his 60s at the time he you know he knew what dangerous was and he knew he was putting himself in a dangerous situation but he, he was willing to to do that to explore his feelings and then the, right. somebody so he was 60 and the guy was like 35 to 40 something like that perhaps I think Mr. Robinson, I couldn't believe, was 65 years old at the time. Of his death. He didn't look it um, from the. No, you know, he's mm-hmm. very. Uh, he was. Um, he was a very um, accomplished man. Uh, very. Uh, yeah, tell us about what he, was, what he was like as a person. What did he do for a living and, and that kind of thing? A little bit of other background. Yeah, so, 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 so to give you an idea for those people listening, uh, he worked. A lot of people around the country would understand that. Here in Columbia is Fort Jackson. Uh, it's a U.S. Army installation, and it's one of the largest training bases in the country, I think, first or second. In, in, in other words, they train most most Army recruits go to a handful of places around the country for basic training, one being Fort Jackson. Now, there's support staff there. There are uh, civilians working on Fort Jackson, and, and Mr. Robinson worked in uh, the hospital system on Fort Jackson. Uh, Moncrief Hospital um, is the name. Um, so he worked there. He was involved in this community. He was involved with the Democratic, South Carolina Democratic Party heavily. Uh, he obviously had an interest in politics, and he cared about his community and, and, and where this might, you know, what, he was involved. You know, he, he cared about it. Um, so, by all accounts, he's a very good man. Um, he had a family. Uh, I believe. What was, was his occupation at the, at the hospital, Kevin? What did he do? He worked. He worked in um, at the hospital in the as it's been as I understand it uh, in the drug dispensary department, and, and that's what I have in the file. And so I can imagine that he was either you know when a, when a a veteran was in the hospital, he would and the, and there was a request for a particular medication, he would he would arrange that, fill a prescription, or issue out the medication that a doctor has prescribed. So he worked so in, in he, that manner. Was he a pharmacist? I, I, I don't believe he was a pharmacist, um, I, I, and, and if I'm wrong, I apologize, but uh, he worked basically in that drug dispensary unit there. Okay. So prescriptions, and, and there are different rules on a military installation that may be in in the general public, um, but but he did work at that uh, facility there. 
Mm-hmm. Well, I'm just thinking, would there have been a perception just in in general in the in the public or with with within his own circles that he had access to drugs and you know would would somebody might think, oh, well, this guy took me up with with drugs? You know, that's a, a possibility. I can just tell you that in the file and the things that I know, there's no indication that he was involved in any sort of activity like that. Now, what a person okay. may believe may be right. different, but by all accounts, examining him as a person, he wouldn't be involved in, in any criminal activity or, or drug theft or anything like that. So that's important. Okay. But that doesn't that is not that's not to say that somebody else might not believe that he could do it or try and or try and blackmail him into doing it if they knew personal things about him. I mean, that's a possibility. Sure. Well, I, I was just thinking off the top of my head, uh, Delilah. This, I just wanted to know what what are your impressions thus far? What comes to you, what comes to mind in hearing the story? Well, you know, it's a sad story, and unfortunately, so much time has passed, and whether there's a suspect or not, it's, it's, I don't know. I mean, I don't know what to think about it. It's, it's mind-boggling that things could go on that far and not be able to, to pinpoint someone and bring justice to the family, which is what every family in this situation would want. Um, and and playing devil's advocate, I think, you know, coming from the standpoint of a family, that is first and foremost on their mind is why is it taking so long? Um, and maybe you can answer that question from an well, investigator's yeah. standpoint. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, there's, there's yeah. more chapters to the story. Is there not, Kevin? There are, there are, in, in, in our investigation, we were able to determine that in a in a jurisdiction nearby, there was a Hispanic male involved, two Hispanic males involved with uh, a, a death, a murder, um, uh, within three months of this, and this this guy, who uh, it's it's a tricky situation to describe, but. Uh, it's a situation where he may have been a victim, he may have been the suspect. But what's interesting to me is that he was actual soldier on Fort Jackson at the time. He was also a, 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 a gay or bisexual man with a family. Um, and he goes to a local area where gay men hang out, not this same location, but he, uh, three months after Mr. Robinson's death, he goes to a location, picks up another. Uh, gay man, a young gay man um, who is an illegal alien uh, working here in, in Columbia. Uh, the two of them have some drinks. There's some intoxication. They go back to the younger man's home um, and the younger man says that he passed out and he woke up and he w- the, the older Hispanic male was, was trying to rape him and he had a knife. And he fought him off and he, he he took the knife from him and he stabbed him multiple times, killing uh, this older Hispanic male. Um, of course, the difficult thing when I say it's difficult is that the authorities at the time identified the younger man as the assailant, even though he said he was being raped. Based on his behavior afterwards, he tried to dispose of the body, clean up a crime crime scene, uh, mm-hmm. and he was ultimately tried and convicted 
of killing this older man um, and went to prison, served his time, and was deported afterwards. Um, but what's interesting to me is that in examining the case file from another agency, that there were multiple people that described the dead man as a, a, a violent homosexual within the, the gay world or, or, or that, that, that world, that he was very aggressive. It, it, essentially, when I'm reading it, that he may have been a, a, a rapist. Um, and obviously, if you believe the story that the young man provided who was convicted of his murder, uh, he used a knife and he tried to rape him. Uh, and, and that's interesting to us because of the scenario that we have with Mr. Robinson. Uh, and you run into this in a lot of cold cases. If he were alive, I'd go, and, I'd go talk to him and, and interrogate him, but he's not. And so we as an agency have gone back and taken the evidence in that murder and brought that to our laboratory. And we're currently, we've done several things, uh, but we're currently trying to uh, run some DNA analysis on the evidence from the, the other case and, and comparing that with the, the evidence from Jack Robinson's murder. So, uh, you know, the, the information is there. Um, the, the similarities are there. Uh, even the locale are there. I can put them, I can say that these two men frequent in the same gay bars in Columbia. They live in a very cl in close proximity to each other. And if we go back to Mr. Robinson's story, remember that the witnesses said that it seemed as if he knew him. Um, and it, so that's the hard part is that we know this now, but now we've got to try and piece them together. Can we put them in the same place at the same time? Do we have people who have seen the two men together? I can tell you that we do have an artist rendering uh, from the witnesses at Mr. Robinson's murder of the suspect. And obviously I have pictures of the, the person killed in, in the other jurisdiction. And that jurisdiction, I failed to mention, is, is West Columbia, South Carolina. Um, and they're very similar. And he fits the, the basic physical description. Um, and there is usable uh, from each one, then, then there is like, are you comparing with the DNA that you, or that the evidence that you're submitting for DNA, there, there is usable, like you're comparing clothing or blood or right, hair? Right. Or and again, to get back to what we spoke about before in Mr. Robinson's case, his clothing was stored improperly. Um, it was placed in a biohazard bag, like I described. And it's, it's not just this case. It's multiple cases from that era. Um, so our DNA lab is struggling to even find a – I mean, obviously, Mr. Robinson was stabbed, and there's a considerable amount of visible blood on his shirt, but it's not testing for DNA, which is unusual. You know, you think if there's a large amount of blood, typically we get DNA off of it, uh, our DNA profile. Um, in this case, we're struggling. So, so as we progress over the years, and it's been tested over the years by other investigators involved in it, of course, now myself, um, we're still struggling, but we've got new technology, and we try and apply the new – the DNA technology, um, it progresses exponentially every year. I mean, it just gets – it's sort of like computers. 
they just get faster and faster and better and better. So we hope that we might, for instance, be able to get a DNA profile from uh, this other person and know what his DNA profile is. And if we were able to put that DNA profile on Mr. Robinson somehow, then we'd know he's our killer. Um, wow, that would, be, that, time. that would be exciting. But I think what you were mentioning to me when we talked earlier is that is is it a matter of deciding if you have a limited amount of usable evidence that's not contaminated or whatnot, do you use it now? And it's kind of like going to the casino. Do I do I place mm. that last bet and use it up, mm. use up all my money, right. or do I wait and maybe in six months mm. or a year we have other technology right. that could really yeah, that's minuscule or however you would describe it, and we could get a match. Is is that your dilemma? One of the one of the difficulties in cold case investigation is if you do have evidence, you have a limited amount of evidence, and you can consume the entirety of the evidence in testing. And so, if you're using, let's say, if we're using a technology today and we consume every bit of our evidence, we make the decision to try, and we fail, who's to say that five years from now there's a, not a new technology that would have succeeded in processing that evidence? But, now, but we've consumed it, so we don't have it anymore. So when you, when you look at it, it's not as simple as just saying that, hey, we're going to test it with everything we got today. You have to use your mind and say that, okay, it's been since 1996. Do I try it now or do I just be patient and wait and see what will happen in the future, what we might have available in the future. And that's a, that's a dilemma in an investigation because obviously we, all, we won't, you know, it's just human nature that we want instant gratification. We want to accomplish our goal. But right. patience. Well, whose decision patience, is that? Whose decision is it? Your, okay. Is it your chief? It's, it's the case officer. It's the case it's officer. The case officer? It's a, his decision to go full force, test it, and of course, we do that in consultation with our DNA analysts and our evidence units. Um, I mean, it, it's it's not an easy decision to make. I mean, you, you take input from everybody involved, and then ultimately, though, if the case is assigned to you, you can make that decision whether or not we're going to try what we got now. Um, well, but here's another problem. question: Is the family consulted at all with this, or no? <clears throat> It, it, I, typically, I explain it to the family, um, but but you have to be confident in your abilities as a trained law enforcement officer. Ultimately, it's your decision. It's your your investigation, and you have mm-hmm. to consider the family's input and, and be mindful of of their desire for closure, but not at the detriment of the case. Um, okay. You have to make that tough decision um, and do the best you can with. And it, it it's all it all goes back to experience, training, and and patience. Patience. Well, Kevin, in a cold case, is the most important thing. When it, in in all of this conversation, and when you've had to make that decision, do you have any idea of how many cases that? The decision was made to wait. Better technology came about, and you were able to get the information that you needed um, for that case. Do you, I, I, I don't have I don't any, know if you have any I don't, I don't statistics have the, on that or not. 
no, I, I don't have those available to me. I can say that, uh, you know, I have cases where, like we said before, you know, in 1968, they, they applied the technology at the time to, and all they had was blood typing. Um, they consumed that, that evidence in 1968, which if I had it today, I'd get a profile. <laughs> no, I, you know, theoretically, I w- it would be easy. Uh, but those detectives at the time may have made a decision to do the best that they knew how to do at the time. And now, unfortunately, we don't have it available to us with modern technology. I mean, it is just – it is what it is. It's case by case, and you, yeah. have, to, you have to do the best you and can. And that's with a hard have. thing. It's a hard it thing is. to explain to families, too, the the case that, you know, when when this – particular event happened mm-hmm. this is the technology we had but now right. now we have all of this technology we see it on tv mm-hmm. and you know everything mm-hmm. is happening why can't it happen in my case why? well why? it was right. destroyed and and there's right. no way to get it back and that uh, it's well, another sad situation one of the, that, one of the it is. most difficult things is that i represent the richland county sheriff's department and i represent the men and women who came before me and will come after me. So um, it's difficult when, when a family looks at me and they're like, well, why did y'all mess it up? I mean, why did the Richland County Sheriff's Department theoretically, why, did, why didn't y'all do it better? And, and to try and explain to them that they did the best they could at the time, of course, they don't, they don't want to accept that. They want their answers. They want it done right. And um, it, it's hard for them to understand and and and, if, and a lot of people, if you're not involved in law enforcement, you know things change over time. You know, all, uh, society changes. You know, the heck, heck a TV in 1968 wasn't that good. <laughs> you know what I mean? It was grainy. <laughs> it was true. whatever, black and white. Uh, and today, it looks like you're there. I mean, so you know, as a society and as technology grows, we we progress, and unfortunately, a lot of times we can't go back. I mean, we just right. can't go back. We can't fix it. Well, I think you have to explain in context that this is these are what the tools we 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 have had and now we have and you know oh well you know we that's our decision but I have another question with regard to this if our technology is growing exponentially and if you choose to wait or not or whatever is there a technology being developed whereby if you have that small amount of evidence that they can still divide it up into minuscule uh, pieces of evidence to be used, used and another piece to be preserved, so that you have something to use. Is are are they? Are they do, do you know of anything um, where there there where you can divide a small piece of evidence perpetually and still have something to use in the future? Is that being worked on? Well. Um... And uh, we've talked before, uh, and, and in Mr. Robinson's case, we, we are using a new technology uh, in an attempt to, uh, for la- this is this is a late. There's probably a DNA analyst listening to me that'll be uh, upset with my description, but for lack of a better term, it's it's a vacuum. It's a DNA vacuum, and so we know it, of you that. use it. Yeah, so okay. you use that on on the item that is evidence and. And it absorbs the particles that it can, and then, uh, as I've been told, it, 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 they place it in in 
the machine, the DNA machine, and it try it attempts to amplify the DNA uh, based on the particles it takes from that piece of evidence. And so we are we are actively as we speak using that in Mr. Robinson's case. Uh, and then remember that we have used older technology in Mr. Robinson's case already on, on the items of evidence. So uh, this particular device, uh, it, it's I don't think I'm confident it's not going to consume the evidence as a whole, um, so I'm willing to use it in this case. And so we're, we're doing that now. And, and of course, uh, if we, we've established the DNA profile of Mr. Robinson uh, and then we find a foreign DNA on him that is not his, then we have to believe that this is a possibility as our suspect. And you have to remember that especially in knife assaults, it is frequent that the offender also cuts himself during a violent assault. Uh, if he's not using a knife that has a hilt, something to stop his hand from, as he plunges the blade into someone, if he's not, if there's not something to stop his hand, frequently the hand will slip down itself onto the blade, causing knife injury. So, so in a modern investigation of a knife assault, frequently I'll look at my offender and he'll have knife wounds to the inside of his hand. A lot of people may look at that, well, that's a defensive wound because you hold your hands up, but no, that's not a defensive wound. It's an offensive wound. That, that, that was just an error. He, he just slid down the blade and, and he cut himself. And so if you understand that about a knife assault, then the potential of your offender's DNA in blood on maybe the clothing of the victim is, is a complete possibility. Oh, that's, um, that's very interesting. Yeah, so it, and, and would it necessarily mix in together with the victim or would they? I yeah, mean, you're, I, I don't want to speak yeah. above my head, but... Right, because right. uh, these are very smart people that we have that, that do DNA analysis. Uh, but but yes, DNA. You look at DNA like a combination of of numbers, and then if you take a batch of numbers from here, a batch of numbers from there, you throw them together, then it's all mixed up. But if you know the numbers before and the numbers after, or, or the numbers from the other side, I should say, you can sift through those and say that this is them, this is this person's, this is that person's, they're both present on this item. Does that make yeah. sense? Yeah. Wow. Well, well, I'm so glad to hear that you're using that technology. We're familiar with another, um, another, another case where they're investigating using that vacuum, and it's very exciting to think that you could yield those results. It, so is this going to be like a while down the line before you get – it's not like CSI that you get the results in an hour. We know that, right? Well, yeah, yeah I mean, uh, again, the technology may get there one day. But mm-hmm. um, it, also you have to – I mean, I investigate modern crimes as well as cold cases, and, and you have to understand that uh, the, the new offenses will always take precedence over uh-huh. older unsolved cases. So so when I talked about patients in a cold case investigation, you've got to have it because you're going to stand in line for your evidence to be processed. And there's going to be people who are going to cut in line in front of you. Mm-hmm. Um, but you have to maintain, and, and sooner we will get there. And then we're, we're, we're lucky enough at my agency, and there are very few agencies around the country that have their own DNA lab. So my DNA lab processes my agency's DNA, whereas in most, for most law enforcement agencies, they use a state laboratory, which we do have here in South Carolina, 
but uh, I, I know a lot of you said you're in Myrtle Beach. Well, Myrtle Beach uses the state law enforcement division to process DNA. And so they get in line with every other jurisdiction around South Carolina for DNA. We don't get in line for, with other agencies. We just get in line with ourselves. Um, well, that's, but we that's have that good. ability here. Yeah, that's wonderful. Um, well, as as I can see, our, our hour has fast come to a, a, a near close here, Kevin. And um, <laughs> so I would like to invite you to come back if you'd like to present other cases. This is wonderful. I think you provided Certainly. some very good information. But in case somebody has uh, is listening and would like to contact you about this case, how can we do that? Well, you can you can reach me at the Richmond County Sheriff's Department at area code 803-576-3073. Um, we also have a Crime Stoppers number here in South Carolina that is 1888-CRIMESC. And you, I would, I would ask that you only call that if you just have to remain anonymous. If you have information and you're eager to speak with me, please call my direct number. And I'd I really enjoy talking to anybody about any case that my agency investigates. Um, I will listen to anybody who has information. And, and obviously, in this case, Mr. Robinson's case, I, I, I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm eager, eager to solve this case. Yeah, we need we need justice for Jack Robinson. We we really do. Uh, D- Delilah, parting thoughts? Well, I just want to say that I appreciate the work that you're doing in this case and and all the other cases you're working throughout throughout your jurisdiction. I know it's um it's a very frustrating occupation, but yet very rewarding. And I'm yeah, I'm very uh... pleased that you were able to join us today. Well, thank you yeah. for having me. I, I, I'm proud to be a, a, a law enforcement officer, and, and I, I believe in what I'm doing. And uh, and I think it's worth in today's world to to tell people that police officers want to help their citizens. They want to help their people, and and uh, that's that's why we got involved. Yeah. Well, be sure to stay in touch with us, and if we can we can assist you in other areas, well, I'll I'll, I'll be glad to help. Okay, Kevin. Absolutely. I've got a file cabinet full of cases. We can go through them. <laughs> okay, well, very good. Well, well, with that final thought, um, thank you for listening. Please pass on this podcast as well as all the other ones in Insight Lens. Delilah, thank you. Everyone have a good weekend, and we'll see you next week for another edition of Chatterfly Video. Bye.